Yeah, and, and that's the thing with alcohol. You know, it, it's the gateway to either all the good stuff or all the bad stuff. And what I mean by that is it, the compound interest of drinking is a shocker. And like the way I looked at it was if I was drinking, say, t- twice a week, three times a week, and I'm not talking again about like mahusif, ridiculous binge drinking. I'm talking about two or three drinks here, two or three drinks there, and maybe on a weekend, five or six, right? <clears throat> that looks like a lot of people's current drinking setup. If you think about that, it takes two or three days in truth to get over even a couple of drinks, two or three drinks, because it destroys your sleep. Look at the research behind sleep. Look at the research around productivity, around alcohol. So if you do the maths around it, suddenly I worked it out and went, hold on, if I'm drinking two and a bit times a week, that means that 100% of the time I'm underperforming in my life. 100% of the time. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness by presenting their stories uncensored and uncut. I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Andy Ramage. Andy is a former professional soccer player who, following an injury which cut short his career, went on to co-create two multi-million dollar city brokerages. But after achieving traditional success, Andy was left feeling broken. He was unfit, unhealthy, overweight, stressed, and unhappy. Andy believed there had to be another way to be successful while staying super fit, healthy, maintaining a happy home life, and doing it with a smile on his face. So, 10 years ago, Andy went on an adventure to study the art of behavioral change and elite performance. The techniques Andy uncovered transformed his mind, body, business, and most importantly, his relationships. Perhaps the key to it all for Andy, though, was when he decided to stop drinking alcohol. By quitting alcohol, he found it easier to eat healthy, exercise more, have better relationships, and found more time in the day, every day. Inspired, Andy firstly co-founded a world-leading behavioral change platform, One Year No Beer, which is a 28, 90, or 365-day alcohol-free challenge, inspiring over 100,000 people to transform their relationship with alcohol. And his latest venture, Seneca Performance, is revolutionizing corporate wellness through its unique mind, body, and lifestyle management program for elite business professionals. In this interview, we get into Andy's time as a professional soccer player, his career as an oil broker, his journey of studying behavioral change in elite performance, and one year no beer. And so, without further ado, my interview with Andy Ramage. Maybe let's bring this back to the beginning here. So were you born and raised in England? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So born and raised in London, East London. Okay. Uh, you know, sort of 10, 15 minutes walk from the city of London in many ways, a place called Dagenham or Darjingham, if you want to be posh, but it's actually quite a <laughs> rough and tough part of the world. But there, yeah, that was my upbringing. Okay. I loved it there. Interesting. Um, I guess what made it kind of like rough and tough, that area? It's just, you know, I think being on the the outskirts of most cities you tend to find that there it was very a working class very you know blue collar if mm-hmm. ironically enough a huge part of the industry there was a massive ford plant ford motor cars plant which most people were involved in in that local area so it was just 
you know, one of those really sort of quite tough and honest parts of the world. And, you know, and I thrived in that environment. Yeah. And what did your parents do for work? Uh, many things. My mom was a full-time mom. I feel very lucky that we, I've got two brothers that the three of us had a, a mom that was there the whole time. My dad worked three different jobs at various points. He ended up from a boy that didn't really have much of a, an education at 16, went into the city and eventually over time ended up being uh, one of the sort of CEOs of, of one of the bigger reinsurance firms uh, in the world, actually. So we did really well for him. So our lives sort of changed a bit as we we grew up we went from again pretty sort of inner city kids and then we went into more of this sort of i guess this slightly more middle class existence as we moved into our our teens in many Mm -hmm. ways yeah and you had aspirations to become a pro soccer player right yeah from from when and as soon as i can remember i mean i signed with a professional club when i was 10 wow um, so it, it happens really early over here in, in the, the UK, even okay. earlier now in, in truth, but yeah, 10 years old, I got picked up by a club. You become a schoolboy for that club. And then at 16, I was given that wonderful opportunity to go and pursue that, to become a, you know, a, an apprenticeship, an apprentice footballer to hopefully become a full-time professional, which I did. It was a great gift, the greatest time of my life in many ways. I've been really blessed with so many good times, but you know, the whole football thing doing, that thing that you absolutely love more than anything else, which I get to do now, by the way, I feel so lucky that I found it elsewhere, but in, okay. in that football space, it was just, it was just a beautiful thing to be involved in. 10 years old. So like, are there like scouts that come watch like 10, 10 year olds play soccer and then is like, yeah, pick them up. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's a huge. And, and obviously back then we're talking, you know, 20, 25 years ago, or 35 years ago, there was money in football, but now there's astronomical money in football. So you can imagine, you know, this, these 10 year old kids could be worth a hundred million dollars in <laughs> 10 years. So unfortunately yeah. it's got, it's, it's, it's a bit almost sort of strange with it. Now you've got people yeah. scouring the country looking for the next big things. So you can imagine these kids are getting picked up at, you know, eights and nines and offered all sorts of incentives and everything, right? Because there's potential that one of these, these children could be worth hundreds of millions in, you know, not very long time. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. And what, what was your journey like to becoming um, like a pro soccer player? Like um, maybe just kind of walk me through that. Yeah. So my journey there was, I guess, a bit of a bumpy one. What happened? I, I, I changed schools as you do uh, from our junior school about, 12 into a like we call it a senior school and I stopped playing football I only played rugby for my school I never kicked a football once just purely played rugby I excelled at rugby I loved it it was a new sport I'd never played it before but what tends to happen is you know the the kids that are relatively sporty can adjust and adapt and I found this new sport called rugby which I really liked but what sort of happened even though I'm still with my professional football club and playing uh, football you know with my, my team, my local teams and whatnot, I, I sort of missed a decent chunk of development. I became really strong and quite tough in that I could run through brick walls because, you know, with my school, I was playing this sport, which I don't know if you know much about rugby, but yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's insane. 
<laughs> rugby's just a mad sport. I mean, your closest equivalent, I guess, is American football, but it's sort of without the pads that the hits are, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a crazy sport, um, which gave me this sort of, I guess, resilience and toughness, but from a technical standpoint, and football's a really technical game, I was way behind. So by the time I actually got to 16 and stepped into the world of professional football, even though I was really like robust in terms of strengths and, and physique and whatnot, technically I was miles behind. And, and it, was, it was quite revealing really early on how far behind I actually was. But that in, in, in some ways was, I think, the genesis of everything that has ever followed since, because I realized quite quickly that I had to start thinking differently. I wasn't good enough. You know, there was 40 other professionals at 16. You're instantly in a man's world. You know, you are competing for that first team slot against 35 year old men that have been in this sport for years and years and years. And as much as you're a team, there's competition within those 40 people, right? There's only 11 spaces on the team. Everyone wants to play. Mm -hmm. So I realized quite quickly, I was miles behind. And the only way to, to sort of inch my way forward was to start to think differently, act differently, eat differently, train differently. And I started to read books, funny enough, which most professional footballers probably didn't do, I would guess. And uh, mm -hmm. that got me thinking differently. I start, and, and what I discovered really quickly was that the, the great pros, you know, the legends that, that we all admire and we adore, none of them were there by just pure genetic talent or fluke not one of them every single one of them was also the hardest working player in their club they were the last off the training pitch they rehearsed and practiced more than anyone else in the club yet on the face of it to the fan you would have said they're born to play football they're so naturally gifted it wasn't true at all they were the ones working harder than anyone else and that really gave me courage because it was like oh i get it all right technically i'm not as good but maybe there's a lot that I can do to improve, whether that's my fitness, whether that's the way that I think. And in doing so, eventually I rose up the ranks and fulfilled that boyhood dream, played in the professional league, scored in the professional league. Yeah, so it, it sort of worked. But that was the start of that whole process of thinking differently and getting different results. Yeah. So you're kind of almost like ahead of your time and thinking about more holistically how you could improve your overall performance. Did you find when you were surrounded by you know, all these professional athletes that there are these maybe these people who were extraordinarily talented that you saw but just didn't didn't end up making it because they didn't put in the work yeah i mean it's it's full of that you know you know i work with a lot of athletes now track and field athletes professional you know soccer players cricketers it, you see it all the time you know the most talented quote unquote because i've just said that i don't really believe in the talent myth but you know there's certain kids that have just got all the attributes that they need to be off the charts, but they don't have the mental aspect. And I think most people would agree when you boil it down, the mental part of any sport is a bigger factor than those traditional sort of genetic traits that often that we need to really excel. And I think occasionally what happens is you get a beautiful marriage between the two. And this is where you get the, the Lionel Messi's, the Ronaldo's in, in, in our world, that are just this, this like uber, uber athlete because they have, you know, the marriage is the two, but most people fall by the wayside because they just don't have that, that mental stamina to keep showing up, to keep iterating, to keep improving, or they rest on their laurels, or they can't handle it when things go wrong. And unfortunately, in professional sport, things go wrong all the time. You get injured, you get dropped, you win, you lose. It's this roller coaster of emotions 
confidence slips you know you see a football team or a footballer or any athlete when their confidence slips it's just a mental thing their performance nosedives so it takes a certain robustness and a certain type of character to be able to deal with that and that's why i do a lot of work now with athletes and i love it because really what i'm there is to try and exactly help them build that mental resilience and stamina so they can perform at elite level even through those tough times which are inevitable as part of sport and life by the way yeah yeah, you know? yeah for sure um what position did you play for i played in the or, sort of central midfield role midfield? so really okay. my job was to run around kick everyone and give it to the good <laughs> players if, if I right. describe it. <laughs> right um and i guess looking back on those years playing pro soccer um what are your what are your biggest takeaways the biggest biggest learnings for me which set me up for the rest of my life was that ability to bounce back quite quickly from failure and that's why i love sport and i think sport is such a wonderful example of life you know it really is it's boiled into this like structured format but it just gives you everything that you need i think for later in life that's why i think all children should find a sport whatever that is if it's not team sport can they do strength training can they run can they find something that's going to put them in the arena where they're going to win and lose where they're going to get dropped where they're going to fail and they're going mm -hmm. to succeed these are the things that football taught me on on you know on a daily basis you know on a daily basis you know you learn about failure and and success and it's really bloody hard to deal with and you have to become incredibly resilient and in my example i got released when i was 18 so i got let go i got told i wasn't good enough i had to bounce back from that most people didn't they, they just disappeared. I came back from that, got into another team, played in the league. Then I got injured at uh, 19, 20. My career was finished at 21. Another massive blow to my life, to my world. And you deal with that, you overcome it. And by the time I hit, you know, the broken world, you know, I always say I was almost bulletproof, you know. So those experiences of that, you know, the challenge and the obstacles that sport gave me have set me up for the rest of my life. Yeah. 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 I love that. And um, talk to me about the, the injury that you sustained, like what happened and like, did you know that your career would be over at that point? No, it was the most silly injury in the history of injuries. I basically tore my cartilage, which it's not, it's, it's like a 10 day out really. It's keyhole surgery, 10 day out. Problem was I was 19 and really starting to make momentum as a footballer. So I just sort of hit it and I ended up playing almost a full season, because I did that in pre-season, i.e. before the season okay. started, with a torn cartilage. And by the time I got operated on at the end of the season, I'd actually then, instead of just tearing my cartilage, I'd actually then ripped out a big chunk of that cartilage and then damaged the bones beneath. So by the time they cleared my knee out, the surgeon at the time said, you've probably got two or three years left, tops. And I was 20 21 at that stage i remember i actually broke down crying i don't cry it's one of the few times in my life i've cried i was just devastated I, my assumption was that he thought i was probably much older than i was um but they were right you know within a year and a bit uh, you know that was it i was finished i couldn't train and my and, and again as i described my role my role in the team i was that sort of um the guy that just was everywhere running smashing through the brick walls once you took that out of my game I wasn't technically, as mentioned, good enough, really. So quite quickly, the ability to be everywhere dissipated from my game because I just couldn't do it. I couldn't physically stand that that type of wear and tear through the knee. It was constantly swollen. It was constantly problematic. So, yeah, within a couple of years, I was out, which was, it was a slow death. 
you know what I mean? Rather than one big horrible moment and then you finish, right. it was gradual over time. Mm-hmm. And um, do you talk about like that sort of stuff with athletes when they have maybe those sort of similar injuries to kind of really like attack it, if for lack of a better term, um, rather than kind of what you did and um, just like playing through it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and, and I, I see that quite a lot. You know, I see it in ballerinas, funny enough. My daughter's a really good ballerina. Baller, ballerinas have the same sort of problem because, they, you know, they might be picked for that starring role. They don't want to be injured. So they will play, or in, in this example, perform whilst injured all of the time. And what happens is that ends up, like I was a great example of that. You might get away with it for one show or one season, but the long-term effect is that you, you might have just ruined your career. So I think it's having the courage to step out when you need to step out and, and listening to your own body. You know, in my example, I started taking massive ibuprofen tablets, which are anti-inflammatories. I should never have done that. Someone should have stopped me. They didn't. Uh, I should have been advised. I wasn't. You know, there was all those you know, mistakes that were had. So no, I'm quite open about it, especially to young athletes. You've got to look after yourself. And if that means you have to sit out for a couple of games, so be it. You know, you've got to have the courage that you're good enough in that space to redevelop and come back a bit stronger rather than thinking I can never come out the team. Otherwise that's it. My career's over. The truth is by forcing yourself to keep going at times when you're clearly carrying an injury could be the worst thing you can possibly do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so what what was the transition out of, soccer like for you like walk me through that like was it was it hard and what were some of some of the things you were thinking about um no i think i started to switch on to it really really quite early on i I always loved education as mentioned i left school at 16 which is as young as you can possibly leave i wanted to go back into full-time education i found myself playing part-time which is the sort of non it's semi-professional type of football as my career was more or less finished i could still sort of cut it just enough to play part-time um, so I went back to university for a couple of years. Uh, I did a, it's called like a HMD. It's like a two year diploma thing in IT, just to sort of do something, just to start to re-educate my mind, which led to me falling into the world of IT and IT sales, which I really enjoyed. And sort of over time, I was still playing a bit of football, had half a foot in the working world. My football, I knew would finish. So it sort of fizzled out and it was quite a nice transition in. I then unleashed this new side of me, which was super social, right? Because I didn't have to prepare for games anymore. I could go out a lot more and enjoy myself a lot more. And as a sort of 22 year old young man, I was in Ireland at this stage in Dublin. I just went off and had a, a bloody great time for the <laughs> next four or five years, probably too much. So yeah, we'll get to that later. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So then how do you ultimately end up in, in finance and banking? So what actually happened more luck than judgment. I, was in Ireland with my now wife. We decided to go traveling. We went around the world, Australia and, and most of Asia and just had the most beautiful, beautiful time. Wound up in Australia, still in IT, had a couple of years. We were going to live in Australia, stay there. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. We got a bit homesick at one point after visiting New Zealand, which is quite green and lush like Ireland. We came back to London. My brother so happened to be one of, if not the biggest trader in the oil market at that stage. Okay. And like big brothers do, he basically got me a job. He said, look, I think you'd be great at this broken thing. Um, you know, I'm a big part of this market. Why don't you go and talk to these guys? I, th- I think it's something that would really suit your personality. Give it a go. My intention was to go back to Ireland with my, 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 my wife at the time. Um, 
but I thought, oh, I'll just go and check it out. I'll try it out. And day one, I found myself, they, they offered me the job. It was one of them. They sort of had to give me a job because my brother was the biggest client. <laughs> so even though I thought, well, I've done really well to, to be given this opportunity, basically in hindsight, once I knew that industry, they basically had to give me a job just to keep my brother sweet. But anyway, the rest of it I did from there on my own with no help from my brother. He'd be the first to admit that. I never did any of his business deliberately because I wanted to see, could I do it on my own? But I found myself in this environment, you know, on the, the trading floor, like the, you've got the Nymex is the equivalent, these big bright jackets, massive personalities. This is a tough environment to survive in. And where I'd been, it was, I found it really comfortable. It was my kind of, place to be it was fast paced it was electric it was like it was proper macho off the scale <laughs> and i liked it and i thrived in that environment and really quickly i found something that was similar to sport for me fast paced mm. electric and I, I excelled within that environment and over the next 10 years built a, a, a one business and then left and set up a, my own franchise called alpha energy built that into a big global business and absolutely loved it you know, and only recently have I come out of that side of it. I still have been doing until very recently some work for my old firm, trying to grow the business out into the US over the COVID period because they, they suffered from a couple of losses. So I've, I've, I'm really connected still to that community, that group of people. I owe it a great debt. It's been incredibly generous to me. It's set me up in my life. It's allowed me to do all these wonderful things. I met some brilliant people. So yeah, but equally, as we'll get into the story, there were parts of me that wanted to do something a bit different. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, just like quickly for people who don't know, um, like what does the role of an oil broker entail? The role. So um, we are basically middlemen between buyers and sellers of oil futures in the same way that you might trade stocks and shares. We sit in the middle between buyers and sellers. We do it now predominantly in it's called an OTC environment. So I would literally have a trader from BP in one ear and I might have a bank Morgan Stanley in the other ear and they are mm -hmm. trading oil futures. They're not trading physical oil. We didn't do the physical side of it. It was just oil futures, futures contracts, a financial contract. We're just middlemen all day long trying to match up deals between buyers and sellers effectively of oil futures. Yeah. Yeah. How does it, uh, how did it compare to what people see in, in movies of what, what a trading floor is like? Was it pretty, pretty crazy? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah 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 it's, it's not dress it up it, it was it's wild you know it was a wild yeah. place and but a bit like a, a football changing room is a wild place there's no rules you know in in these environments you know predominantly young men mostly you know probably huge percentage i'd say and it's there's lots of you know money flying about there's lots of you know people doing great jobs it's exciting there's all the problems that come with that there's a lot of problems with you know alcohol and abuse and you know, it's it's a not a very PC environment. I'll say that. It's probably the least PC environment you'll ever step into. So it's <laughs> it's only for certain people will thrive in that environment. Other people it will completely overwhelm them. But that really has changed now. Most of the open outcry pits are all gone now. So it's all up in offices. It's much more refined. If it could be more refined, uh, it's becoming a much more professional business in that sense, which is something that you know, I've really enjoyed, that's been a big part of my story is really trying to le level up the professionalism of everything that I do and the businesses that I run. So it's gone from that place of just like the Wild West, in truth, to a much more, I think, uh, robust and sustainable career path now that, that's, that's, that's a much higher level of professionalism than it has been in the past. And it's great, you know, it's great fun. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I remember you talking about um, this in another podcast interview about you feeling like there is this almost um, requirement to drink as part of the job and it's part of banking. Um, I guess, like how often would, would you be drinking like while on the job or like after work and, and how did all that make you feel? Yeah. So, I mean, if we wind back, you know, I've been doing it 17 years and that, that environment or involved in it probably about 17 years, that's a big chunk of time. The world has changed a lot, you know, in the last 17 years. So for the first few years, it was a big part of it. You know, it wasn't daily, but you know, maybe we were out with clients two or three times lunches and then a couple of nights a week, five times. That's a lot, you know, when, yeah. when you think about it, plus then I'm still a young person at that stage before our kids were on the scene my wife and I would still like to go out and be social so it doesn't take a lot to realize that you know a decent chunk of our time in the name of being social was out drinking so when you compound that over the the coming years as as I did those first early years in broken I loved it right you know you had the opportunity to go to the best restaurants and do all this nice stuff and it was it was great fun until it wasn't and then it just got a bit tiresome, you know, you could sort of done it, you know, I was jaded, I put on a lot of weight. Um, and then I just stopped enjoying it is the truth. The fun just started to dry up. And I think a lot of people at that point just keep going. They just keep going and think this is that there's one way to do this. I'm just, and then all the problems start, right? The problems around addiction start, the problems around often marriage breakups start, the problems that just with health start, you know, so many people end up in a, in a terrible way, you know, dressed up in the name of being social through business. And I reached, I guess, a sort of a, a, a critical point about, about 10 years ago now, where I'd reached that, I guess, traditional place of success that I was fighting for, you know, that place, mm-hmm. you know, got the nice car, the nice house, cash in the bank, you know, I, I really was on top of my career in that sense. And I sort of looked around at those people more, successful than me quote unquote and i saw just more destruction you know broken bodies broken minds broken homes i just remember thinking what are we all doing that doesn't make any sense why like all right everyone's got you know a ladder of more and more income fab but look at all the destruction look at all the you know the devastation that seems to come with it that just doesn't i don't make any sense to me you know, I want to spend time with my family. I want to hang out with my wife and my kids. I don't want to never be at home or always feel tired and jaded and struggling for mojo. And this is like a battle every day. And it feels like I'm on survival mode. I should be break dancing around the office, according to the <laughs> conventional wisdom of money equals happiness. And I absolutely wasn't, you know, I was a five out of 10 in terms of my wellness or my happiness. And that was a real big epiphany for me. It was like, ah, okay, I've got a choice here. I've got a choice. I can continue doing what I'm doing. And yeah, there'll be more income and bigger houses and more more stuff. Or I can do something fundamentally different. And and, and I was genuinely tempted just to pack it all in and just say, no, keep keep your job, keep your whatever, no interest. But I didn't. I actually thought, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stay in this industry, but do it completely differently. And I resigned from that, from that role that I was in at the time. I built a big business within that firm to set up my new business. Um, everyone said I was completely nuts to leave the biggest seat and the biggest firm to sort of go it alone. But I sort of knew I had to, unfortunately, leave completely to re, reinvent myself elsewhere, if you know what I mean. Because yeah. I was so sort of, everyone knew me 
in that environment as a certain type of character. And I knew I wanted to actually get to know my authentic self again. And there was a good chance that was going to come back in a different shape to what this group of people had got to know me. So I felt like one of my only options was to start fresh. And that led to, to, to everything that we see today, I think. Yeah. So you, you, in a sense, had created like this identity with, with that prior firm and it would have just been maybe like easier to like, to, like you said, reinvent yourself by going out on your own. Yeah. And I think that makes it hard for people because not everyone can just reinvent themselves by physically, you know, leaving. I was in a fortunate position that I was able to do that, but it was a strong enough draw to me that I just thought there's something more to this short and precious life. I don't get this trajectory that I'm on. I think it's leading me nowhere. I'm going to just go and do this completely differently and see what happens. And then at least I'll sink or swim by my own actions. And I'll either go out trying to do it the right way, or it might work out amazingly. And I might demonstrate to lots of people that there's another way to do it. And fortunately that, that's what happened. Yeah. And during this time, did you um, talk with any other people in this finance banking world or any of your colleagues about what your like your epiphany or what you were thinking and like, like, did you, did others also feel the same way? Yeah, in truth, no, I didn't. The only person I spoke to anyone about this was my, my brother I mentioned was the trader, how I was feeling and my wife. You know, I knew I, at this stage, I was already wrestling with the idea that I didn't want to drink as much or at all. I was over it, bored of it, for want of a better word, bored of that side of the business i wasn't enjoying it anymore i didn't find it fun anymore what once was fun it just wasn't it so for me i felt like that was a big part of what i wanted to do i didn't really sit down and discuss it with other people and the truth is you know i sort of have these conversations in this environment but i still don't really have those big conversations with other brokers in that environment because they sort of know it themselves you know and, and it can come across as being a bit preachy or uh, you know i think they're all acutely aware of the, the difficulties that come with this amazingly generous industry that can provide you know on a material sense so much but it does come with all these inherent pitfalls if you do it the wrong way you know and i think what i wanted to do was quietly test the system and see did right. it work and it you know, did and then, yeah and it did yeah and like unbelievably well <laughs> yeah that's awesome um so you leave and um, go on to start your own, um, your own firm. Like what was cutting out alcohol? Was that like your first step to improving your overall health? Was that like the first thing you focused on? Uh, no, surprisingly, it was the last. And, and, you know, I think that's, there's a, that's quite telling in the fact that it was the last. So what happened? I left to set up the new firm. I got put on nine months gardening leave, which is, you know, you got, you get fully paid to not work because they don't want you to set up a rival firm, right. which is bliss, right? <laughs> you know, so I had nine months to do what I wanted. You know, I had a young family. We did loads of traveling and, you know, we, we spoiled ourselves and it, I, I just found it a really special time. In that place, I barely drank. So what that said to me, given the option to choose whether I would or wouldn't drink, it was clear. I decided I didn't want to. What was putting me in the arena all the time was that social pressure of being with clients and entertaining and feeling like I've got to be someone that I'm not anymore. So that was really revealing for me. But in that space, I studied hard. I started to train with the best thought leaders, big thinkers, learned a lot about well-being, about meditation, about nutrition, got, got started to get fit and healthy again. 
So my plan was to go back and set up this new business and bring all of this into it. You know, I always joke that I was, you know, going to do everything differently. I was even going to eat salad and stuff, right? Going into this new business. So of course I sit down with all of these brilliant ideas of how I'm doing things differently. Within five minutes, I'm back in that scenario again. I'm dealing with clients and I'm there. I'm like, I've got to grow this business. I've got to entertain. I've got to wine and dine. And then I realized my performance was just getting slammed by that tiredness and that couldn't be arsedness that comes with drinking alcohol. So that was the last thing that I questioned and went, right, I'm going for it. I actually think removing the alcohol, even though everyone's telling me that's the last thing you can do, right? Cause that's what we have to do. We have to get out there, entertain and meet people. I just felt that actually was the key to it. And, uh, and that gave me the courage to start experimenting with not drinking and taking clients out and doing all those type of things. So it was the last thing, but it was the greatest thing. It was the key that then unlocked everything else because all that lovely nutrition was getting destroyed by hangover stodge food, right? McDonald's McMuffins appeared on the scene, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> you know, there was no time to get fit because I was a bit jaded and too tired. So unlocking the alcohol key was not only the thing that just transformed my career, it was the one that unlocks all those other well-being initiatives that I'd started to learn about. So they just combined and it transformed everything. Yeah. And I'd love to hear more about how you wine, uh, wine and dine clients without the wine, I guess, in your case. Um, as someone who also came from the financial world, I, I used to work in private equity. You know, it was very common also to have drinks with bankers and potential investors and management teams of potential investment in portfolio companies and so on. Um, and I found it, um, if I didn't want to, to drink, like someone would ask me like, Hey, let's grab a beer to talk about this, um, potential deal that I think would be a good fit, fit for your firm. I'd be like, okay. Um, so it was also something that I struggled with when I was in PE. So how, what was that experience like in trying to, yeah, like I said, wine and dine, get new clients, but without using, I guess the alcohol. Yeah, it was tough. And, and I spent a lot of time stealth, not drinking. And what I mean by that is pretending that I was drinking when I wasn't, you know, so I got friendly with certain pubs and they knew that my pints weren't really, we have pints over in the UK, which is the big glasses of, of beer were my special ones. So they'd get two alcohol free bottles of beer and pour it into a pint glass and then pour, you know, my clients pint if they were drinking pints on draft. So then they would never know because once hmm. it was in a pint glass and it looks like a beer and, you know, they would never suspect that someone like me in their mind would actually not be drinking. I could actually right. spend the whole evening with them without them ever knowing. <laughs> technically, <laughs> I wasn't actually drinking anything. I actually sat across from a client one night drinking wine, but never actually drunk any wine genuinely i would put it to my lips put it back down put it to my lips put it back wow. down the, the the waiter would come around and top our glasses up and clearly mine didn't need topping up kept topping up the client kept topping up the client and i'd just go to lips and back down lips and back down one-on-one -on -one. so it is possible if you want to go <laughs> stealth to do it in that environment um because i needed the confidence i needed to get a big enough run of being alcohol free to gain the confidence to, to sort of start saying to clients head on i'm not drinking right let's go out let's still have fun but also what I started to do was, was think outside the box. I thought, right, are there other ways to be sociable with clients without just drinking? And the truth is, what I found, a lot of clients, they're just as over it as I was. They'd be actually relieved when they met me and I said, I'm not drinking. You could almost, 
like feel the tension and they, they, they're like, ah, oh, the relief, because they're like, brilliant. I'll have a sparkling water as well. You know, I think there's a lot more. What happens in that sort of, let's say that macho environment, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, really, when we're all meant to be these, you know, these sort of, you know, tough characters and stand up for ourselves. Let's just say you're in a room of six people sit down to lunch. If the first person orders an alcoholic drink, you can almost bet that basically the rest of the table will. You know, it sets the scene. What I discovered, if I was the first person, and I would make sure I was, to order a non-alcoholic drink or a sparkling water, the majority of the people around that table would also order a sparkling water or a non-alcoholic drink. Because I bet they're all sitting there thinking, I'd really rather not drink today. But we all get caught in that social pressure trap of going, but I don't want right. to be the one that's not part of the group or part of the crowd. So very often, we're all sitting there thinking, I don't want to drink, yet all of us might end up drinking. It's completely bananas until someone comes along and does something different, you know, and that was me for a long while, that actually then gives other people the excuse to say, actually, well, if he's not drinking, I'm not drinking because now I don't feel bad. Like, I cannot tell you how much that would happen. So even though at first I thought it was going to be really difficult, it actually got easier and easier over time. Right. Interesting. Um, I mean, that's a good segue to start talking about um, one year, no beer. So how does all of this lead you to, to eventually starting uh, One Year No Beer? Yeah, so as that sort of adventure progressed, I ended up getting to about six months where I hadn't had a drink. My business was booming again against all the odds. I'd lost three stone. That's about 42 pounds in weight. Wow. I was exercising consistently again. My body fat had gone from 35% down to below 10, where it still is. I was all over it. You know, my relationships were miles better. I was I was consistent in the way that I was showing up in the office I felt great looked completely different I just thought this is this is pretty cool I've done something in an industry that said blatantly you cannot do this and what I started to prove to myself that I could still be in this industry that that I really enjoyed and loved and have a really nice home life and be super fit and healthy and start to debunk all of those like stereotypical classic pitfalls that I'd seen so many other people make. And I just thought, this is, I, gotta sh- I wanna share this with someone. So I bumped into a colleague from my old firm who we would meet in secret because it's that industry. If you leave a firm to set up a rival firm, you're dead to them, right? You can't, they don't wanna see you, they don't wanna meet you. It's like you're out, right? The second you go. So we'd meet in secret, guy could read Fairbanks. He was really inspired by what I was doing. He took a break from alcohol, got the same results, was crushing it in his job as a broker, taking clients out, doing different things. We're like, this is cool. He knew a lot about the, the Tinter web. I didn't know anything. What I loved doing was writing and reading and learning. So I sort of had this idea of, of I, well, I had an idea of two or three different businesses floating about in my mind. One of them was this thing, one year, no beer. We agreed that sounded like a good idea. Let's go for it. I wrote a little ebook. We put it up onto the internet thinking that maybe a couple of city types would read it within three weeks. It was downloaded 10,000 times, literally all over the world, China, Brazil, people messaging because the, the, the sort of uh, thesis behind the book was that you're not giving anything up by taking a break from alcohol. You're gaining a massive advantage. And that was really starting to resonate with people. It was like, oh, this is maybe the first book that I've ever read that's not saying you've got this horrible problem and you've got to worry about it for the rest of your life. It was like, 
what what you're worrying about you're not giving anything up right what you're giving up hangovers and tiredness and can't be arsedness and lack of momentum what you're gaining time energy money relationships this is the greatest gift so that sort of messaging really started to resonate with people so that just led to let's create a facebook group there was no big plan we gave everything away for free um initially it was just something we wanted to do because we were well paid in our jobs and just wanted to, to, to just put something nice out into the world and, and help as many people as we could. Fast forward about two years into it of, of giving it away for free. We were, we were sort of broken. <laughs> we were, it, we'd both invested hundreds of thousands of, of pounds of our own money into this free movement. It was for me, it was a hundred percent of my free time. It wasn't a little bit of my, my free time. It was a hundred percent of my free time and Ruri's free time. And it completely engulfed us. And it was the most beautiful thing adventure we'd ever been on. We'd helped all of these people and the messaging that we got and we loved it, but it just wasn't sustainable. We were like, this is, this is ridiculous, right? We're burning through any of our life savings. We've got no time. We, this is, we can't keep doing this. And only by a fluke more than again, any great plan, I just created an online course that we were going to give away for free as well, but it was really easy because it was in a, in a sorry in a little application that would allow me to um, switch a button on to turn it into a paid-for course. So I did. We said let's just like chance our arm. Let's just close it down for two weeks because we were broken, we were burnt out, we were like I don't think we can do it anymore. And I said look, let's just switch that over and see what happens. And we did. And we came back two weeks later to, I guess, effectively like a little miracle in the sense that we'd sold four or five of these online courses. And that was the penny drop moment of, oh, maybe people would invest in our, you know, insights, a community, all the psychology that we're learning and go on an adventure with us. If people pay for it, that will allow us to turn it into a more robust business. We can get people in to help us with it. So we're not doing everything. We can then leverage that into marketing to reach more people and really hasn't looked back since you know that was probably another four years ago as a as a big organization now it's reached hundreds of thousands of people all over the world to be clear i'm no longer involved in an official capacity i did step down officially uh about six months ago i've left it to ruri the original uh, founder with myself to run that it's a big organization he's got big plans for it they didn't quite align with my vision of what I was trying to do with with some other ideas and initiatives so I've left him to do that but I'm so proud of of everything that we've achieved at one you know it's been an amazing amazing thing to be a part of that's awesome I guess so what does what does one year no beer look like today and um, how has it evolved over the years yeah, so it went from, as mentioned, it was literally me recording videos in my garage, you know, and occasionally a broom handle would appear in the backdrop. You know, it was, it was that level to being, you know, a, a really professional, bigger organization now that has, you know, lots of staff and a really big reach that invests a lot in marketing and advertising to, to broaden that reach. And it's, it's a really exciting movement that I think has been perfectly timed it's it's needed a different approach to you know this huge issue around alcohol and just to set the scene about that just quickly as well and, and i didn't really cover that off my relationship with alcohol i would describe myself as a middle lane drinker someone that would drink sometimes averagely sometimes heavily sometimes moderately sometimes not at all which is basically everyone right you know right. i wasn't exceptional 
in my environment, far from it. There was no horrific addiction. There was no rock bottom. It was just getting in the way of my best life. And in removing it, I found it quite difficult because I built, you know, again, all this sort of psychology around alcohol and needing it to, you know, be part of the tribe and all that sort of stuff. That was the sort of genesis behind One You Know Beer. So no, One You Know Beer is a platform now. It's much broader. There's a podcast. It's got a huge reach. You know, the plan is to try and roll this out to millions of people over the coming years, which again, even though I'm not directly involved in, I'll always be indirectly associated with, and I'm, I'm incredibly proud of everything it's doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, it's, and it's not for like alcoholics. This is more for, like you said, the moderate drinkers and like, pretty much all, mo- mo- all of society. Yeah. So it's in that sort of fun challenge space. Of course, there is a real spectrum of, of, people's relationship with alcohol people that don't drink all the way through to you know physically dependent we sit in that prevention space really of people that it's probably becoming a bit of an annoyance rather than some horrific dependency it's like ah i'm hung over again i'm tired again i can't be asked again i said to myself i was gonna take a break and i haven't a lot of people sit in that sort of bracket of this is a frustration let's do a challenge make it fun make it upbeat make it positive leverage the advantages that's probably the predominant uh, group of people that we get in the system okay interesting and um particularly during i guess quote-unquote normal times you know drinking is so intertwined with people's social and professional lives like beers after work company happy hours you go to a bar or club on the weekends etc cetera, etc cetera. um what are some of the most effective methods maybe that you've seen with one year no beer to help people break out of this cycle um, while still maintaining that strong social life. Yeah. Well, I think the world's changed so much because of alcohol free alternatives. Like they didn't exist really. You know, when I first set out on that adventure, even though I described those one or two pubs that had these alcohol free options, which were Bex blue, which is one brand I had to selectively find (laughs) these bars, but generally that stuff wasn't available. Whereas now the biggest growing growth industry in the drinks industry is the alcohol free industry. So you've got every brand pretty much every, all the bright minds and the big thinkers and the big business behind their alcohol free alternatives. So you can go into any bar now pretty much in the UK and, and most of Europe, as I understand it. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it's, it's, it's a lot of the same over in the, the U S and, and Canada. Um, and get alcohol-free alternatives, really good alcohol-free alternatives, whether they're AF beers or, you know, a seed lip or a, a silk tree. These, these are like uh, almost alcohol-free gin lookalikes that you can turn into all the pomp and ceremony of a really grown-up drink, yet there's no alcohol in it. So I think that has changed the game first and foremost, right? Because then you can still go out and be social. You can still be a part of the crowd. You can still have something that looks and feels like the thing that everyone else is doing, yet you skip the bit that's stealing your mojo and your momentum. And then you gain the bit that's gonna make sure that you're consistent and in everything that you do and get your mojo back and your time back and your energy back. And you keep that lovely social aspect of your life. Things change though. We've got to hold our hands up. Not for everyone, but I would say for most people, socializing in that way changes. You know, if you're not in the space where you're getting drunk, for example, it gets a bit boring after three or four hours if other people are on that journey you know and i think that part of the adventure is making peace with that and that's not everyone's situation it was mine you know lots of my friends and colleagues and whatnot were there to to drink in a different way and they've come a cutoff point where i'd be like thanks guys or, or girls i've had a great night i'm off 
because I want to get up tomorrow. I'm going mountain biking. I'm going for a run. I'm doing something exciting. I'm going to be up and on it and you're going to be right. struggling. Right. Right. Yeah. That's great. And, and why, um, why do you use the term to describe uh, one in your beer as a behavior change platform when referring, like why that term specifically? Yeah. Cause I quite like that. Again, there's a lot, there's so much stigma around anything alcohol, you know, and I think there traditionally has been so much stigma that stigma that has put so many people off because no one wants to be labeled. No one wants to hear any of those sort of stigmatized words. We don't use them, you know, addiction or even sober in the UK or sober's a very stigmatized word. And what I mean by that, it suggests that you've had a major issue and now you're drying out or you're cleaning up or you're getting sober. Interesting. The, the, the people that sit in that, again, that space where they're not in that real problematic space, run a mile from those type of associations that's they're fearful of it so we've had to work really hard to distance ourselves from that because that's not where we're aiming as suggested it's in that prevention model so i quite like that is behavioral change because it is at that level it is behavioral change for most people is the truth it's just habitual processes that we've sort of slipped into over time that can be unwound using behavioral change methodology so i think it's quite important to frame it like that and it sort of steps us again a bit further away from maybe a space that has gone into an addiction which requires a different type of intervention as it were right yeah and um and like you said earlier once you remove or for certain you know people if you're like hungover once you remove the alcohol like it's no more like that'll affect that affects your diet like you want to have that egg McMuffin, that egg sandwich early in the morning, then maybe later on you'll have a burger and, and all of that and just continues into that vicious cycle. So, Yeah, and, and that's the thing with alcohol. You know, it, it's the gateway to either all the good stuff or all the bad stuff. And what I mean by that is it, the compound interest of drinking is a shocker. And like the way I looked at it was if I was drinking, say, t- twice a week, three times a week. And I'm not talking again about like mahusif, ridiculous binge drinking. I'm talking about two or three drinks here, two or three drinks there, and maybe on a weekend, five or six, right? <clears throat> that looks like a lot of people's current drinking setup. If you think about that, it takes two or three days in truth to get over even a couple of drinks, two or three drinks, because it destroys your sleep. Look at the research behind sleep. Look at the research around productivity, around alcohol. So if you do the maths around it, suddenly I worked it out and went, hold on, if I'm drinking two and a bit times a week, that means that 100% of the time I'm underperforming in my life. 100% of the time. From something that's completely self-inflicted in the name of being social or meeting clients, I'm underperforming, not just in my career, in my relationships, in my health, in everything. Because of this self that doesn't make any sense to me it didn't make any sense to me and i was like well hold on i'd much rather remove that and be performing optimally 100 percent of the time so that's what i did and, you know and that for me was really motivating it was like well why am i and, and for me you know thinking about would i go back and drink now like why would i i don't like i don't understand no i'm not going to do that thing that's right. going to destroy my mojo and my momentum for two or three days every time i get drunk i've demonstrated that i can do all the things that i need to do without it anyway so why why bother having it in my life yeah yeah and i'm sure you've heard um i guess the excuse from a lot of people um when they 
when you maybe recommend or mention to them, like why they're not exercising more, like, oh, I just don't have the time for, for that, don't have the time to do this and so on. I'm sure that probably what you found with one year no beer is that when people do um, take a break from alcohol, they gain that time back. Yeah, I think it's the greatest gift. And, and I was one of those people. I was one of those people that said, don't have any time to exercise, don't have time to study, don't have time to learn, survival mode. St I stopped drinking and unlocked, and bearing in mind I was running a big you know, financial brokerage. It's a big job, lots of hours, like most people, you know, all of the stuff that comes with that. And then I found two hours a day that didn't exist in my life. And the only reason I found those two hours a day is because I stopped drinking. That is the only reason it ever happened. So I started to get up earlier, started to get up at 6am then to 5am, still get up at 5am now. Two hours before breakfast in that space, because as I, I described, I've almost always been involved for the last 10 years in the, the brokerages. In that two hours a day, you know, managed to get super fit and healthy. I wrote two books. I went back, having left school at 16, did a degree, did a master's degree, you know, set up the one, you know, be a movement, all of it before work all of it whilst having, you know, a full-time job. So there's no one that can ever say to me, I don't have enough time. You do. It's there if you look for it. Um, the great wise philosopher Seneca said, it's not that we don't have enough time. It's just that we waste so much of it. We do. Like I was wasting so much time. I never realized it until I stopped drinking. And it's not even just the alcohol and the fact that you're sleeping better. It's the fact that you start eating better. It's the fact that you start exercising more. So the stress level come down. You're more energized. So you can sleep better and get up. All those things. It's that compound interest. You can change the world in two hours a day. Yeah. It's awesome. I love it. And getting into these last handful of questions here. Let's say we meet again on the street in five years. What would you want to be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation? It can be personally or professionally. Yeah, I think, you know, I've set all these big, grand goals for myself because I quite like the challenge of it. I'd really like to have trained a million people to reach their full potential. I'd like to train a large cohort of coaches so that collectively we can maybe broaden that to 10 million people. That's something I'd be really excited about. But equally, you know, I use that as a bit of a sort of motivational barometer, but I genuinely mean it. If we can continue to help one person or 10 people are still bloody brilliant. You know, when I get the messages through or the emails through or someone said, this has changed my life. That's the most like wonderful thing I could ever hear. So yeah, I'd like to be able to sort of hit those big headline numbers just because that would mean that whatever we were doing was going well and we'd managed to reach lots of people, but equally it's not an ego thing. I don't need to hit those big numbers. It's just more of a, a motivational carrot. If we can help a handful of people, I'd be delighted. That's awesome. And talk to me more about the, uh, the coaching and, and what you're doing there. Is that like executive coaches? Is it like life coaches? Like what is it? What are you doing with that? Yeah. So we've got our own unique coaching system called the Arate way. Arate is a wonderful ancient Greek word, which sums up everything that I'm about. And, and Arate, which is spelled A-R-E-T-E, but pronounced Arate, means to fulfill your full potential, to achieve excellence in your life. Um, to find your meaning and purpose, all sort of bundled up into one beautiful word called Arate. So we've got our own coaching accreditation called the Arate Way, but then we've teamed up with the ICF, which is the International Coaching Federation, which is probably globally the most recognized coaching federation 
there is so that our course is accredited with the ICF. So at the end of training with us to become a coach, hopefully you're in that wonderful place where you'll have our accreditation, but you'll also have like the leverage and the gravitas of the ICF, which basically puts you in that elite bracket where you could walk into an investment bank as a coach, or you could step out of that and, and work with us in the alcohol free space, for example, or whatever space that you were interested in. Oh, that's interesting. And since you've embarked on this whole journey of peak performance and personal development, are there any books that have made a particularly significant impact uh, on you in your life? Loads. I don't know how long we've got. I'll just do a, a couple <laughs> of them. But no, books have been huge to me. The original book that, that set this in, you know, adventure in play was Anthony Robbins' Awaken the Giant Within. Huge book mm-hmm. for me. That, that changed everything when I read that 10 years ago. Um, other great books, anything by Seneca. Uh, S-E-N-E-C-A of Love Seneca for years just a real insightful philosopher from about 2000 years ago and then just some broader books that people might enjoy that have really inspired me Philosophy for Life by a guy called Jules Evans brilliant book I absolutely um, love that book Essentialism it's another great book Greg McGowan uh, Miracle Morning Hal Elrod another great book I, there's a few for people. I mean, all of those sort of yeah. bundled together have, have been really inspirational to me. That's great. Um, what does your daily routine look like? Daily routine is, is, is pretty formalized. I wake up at five, I go straight downstairs. I drink a large glass of water. Then I have a green juice, effectively. 30 press-ups, 30 minutes on the bike. some Peloton, off the bike, 30 press-ups. I just want to get that up to 100 press-ups, so 50 and 50 um then into a quick meditation bit of journaling shower then i'm at my desk and then i'm writing so i try and sort of write in that morning space up until about 7 30 this is a gmt and then 7 45 a.m i do my live pretty much every morning on facebook and instagram that sort of sets the whole day up then the balance of the day in blocks of deep work wherever i can so that's no phone that's no distraction that's no emails I'm writing, preparing courses, recording material. And then outside of that, I'm strength training. You know, I'm hanging out with my kids and my wife and doing fun stuff. There's freedom in the discipline. So I know if I can like jam pack those mornings, by the time most people are just warming up, you know, I've done a day's worth of stuff, you know, and optimize that day that then I can enjoy myself and smile and have fun. That's what it's about, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's all about. So as is the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? Uh, Yeah, throughout my life, I think it's a desire to be the best that I can. I know it's dangerously cliche, but I think there's always been a bit of me that just thinks, you know, there's a bit more, there's a bit more in the tank, you know, what can you do to, to level up? And I think I've been really lucky to latch on quite early to the fact that we only get one go at this. You know, so I'm having, I'm having a go at it. You know, I'm not going to settle for the standard stereotypical pathway, even though I've, I've danced on those paths along the way, I, I've figured it out every time. No, I'm going for it, you know, and what will be, will be. And hopefully, you know, I'll sink or swim on my own merits. But at the moment, you know, it's the greatest adventure I've ever been on. And I think that keeps the vibrancy going and the energy and the excitement of life going. Yeah. Awesome. And lastly here, before we wrap up, what parting words of wisdom or advice would you like to leave the people listening um, with in terms of like evaluating the relationship with alcohol? 
yeah, I think it, it's, it's really simple. Stop today. <laughs> and what I mean by that, let me just explain that so it doesn't sound as, as sort of brutal as that. <laughs> what I mean by that is if you're thinking of this thing and maybe you've listened to this podcast and thought, that sounds interesting. Maybe he's right. I don't know. Because most people don't know. The only way you'll ever find out is by testing the system. And then there's no point looking at your diary going, oh, I can't do it because I'm let out of lockdown on this day or I've got a birthday because that always happens. Start now. Why wait another day to test the system and just test the system? Do 28 days or 90 days. If you feel amazing and get all these wonderful benefits, brilliant. You just learned something new. If you don't, and genuinely your life is no better, you've also learned something really revealing. So my, my parting wisdom is if you're thinking about it, Let's do it. Start now. Come and see me. Like every day I'm live, Andy Ramage Official, Facebook, Instagram, andyramage.com. Hook up with me. I'm out there cheering you on and then go for it. And again, if it's a nice experience, you've just learned something new. Awesome. That's a great place to end here. Andy, thanks again for coming on the show. This is great. I've loved it. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. I actually was going to follow up with where people can go to find you online, but I think you already just rattled that off. I just covered it. <laughs> yeah. In a nutshell. Awesome. Um, well, everyone else can also uh, visit my website, chaserosa.com, and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks to everyone who's listening, and see you next time.